0: This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. been absent for the past couple of weeks. I've been really kind of overwhelmed at home and at work. And I'm um, trying to get back into um, getting these podcasts out at least on a once-weekly basis. Uh, often as time permits. I'll try to get a couple out in one week, or at least a couple of them recorded. Those of you who send me emails with feedback, I do appreciate that. It does help to know that people are listening and, and do appreciate this. And I do appreciate your dialogue and support. Much to my better judgment, I'm doing this at home tonight, and I have five kids. So at any point, one of my crumb crunchers might come busting through the door, and I apologize for that in advance. The topic that I want to talk about today is antibiotic therapy and critical illness, and, and the source reference that I'm using for this is a um, a chapter um, in the Adult Multiprofessional Critical Care Review, uh, which was sponsored by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Um, I was a member of the faculty for this in Chicago. Um, a few weeks ago and I was just really impressed with wanting at the program that Jim Salatos uh, uh, put together for the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Uh, the brevity of the speakers uh, by really hitting salient features of the topics uh, as well as the uh, syllabus. So, if you have an opportunity to take that course, I'd certainly recommend it. Antibiotic therapy in the, in the ICU is something that's, I would imagine, to um, the inexperienced provider, namely a resident or a fellow, could really seem overwhelming. What decides what antibiotics we're going to use? Is it who's buying us lunch? a particular day or a certain pen or drug rep, and I'd like to think it certainly doesn't. uh, I I get a little bit insulted by people who think that that actually influences prescribing patterns, uh, that you have a lot of highly intelligent, highly motivated, hardworking individuals, and the the presence of a 70-cent pen is going to decide what uh, antibiotic therapy you're going to use in somebody with a life-threatening illness. Having said that, though, I am part of the, the uh, no-free-lunch crowd where uh, I, I don't let the drug reps buy my lunch. If they want to take me out, that's fine. and it will typically go Dutch. So when you have a patient in the ICU, what is determining the antibiotics you're going to use, and, it's, and it could be reasonably complicated, and a lot of it is really determined also by local factors uh, in your ICU, knowing things like your ICU, antibiograms. But you really need to, when you decide on an antibiotic, it needs to be more than just what is S for sensitive or R for resistant on a microbiology report, what is your antibiograms, or what maybe the, the Stanford antimicrobial guide will say. The majority of patients in an intensive care unit will receive one or more antimicrobial agents during their duration of uh, their stay in the intensive care unit. These could be for empiric reasons, they can be for the treatment of the definitive defined infection, uh, either a community acquired or hospital acquired infection, or they could be used for prophylaxis. What's unfortunate and perhaps disturbing is that many antimicrobial prescribing practices in intensive care units really being grounded on unproven or false concepts or just simply bad practices by uh, those prescribing physicians. These include the use of antimicrobials for conditions not requiring anti-infective treatment, excessive duration uh, of use of the antibiotics for treatment of prophylaxis, selection of inadequate empiric treatment for patients with sepsis, inappropriate dosing, redundant coverage, perhaps the underutilization of narrow spectrum agents, or the overutilization of the broad spectrum agents when you think of this list you can say well certainly this can't be that big of a deal and the answer is it certainly can if you were prescribing the wrong antibiotic for somebody who has a life-threatening infection clearly the infection is going to get a upper hand and that could result in sepsis and multi-organ fire well what about the use of the overly broad spectrum antibiotic or using it for longer than the prescribed period If it should be a seven day course maybe we're giving it fourteen day courses well using the stronger broad spectrum antibiotics uh, or prescribing them for a longer duration. Really produces this problem of multiple drug resistance. You cannot open a newspaper or a television show, uh, television news show, and not hear about the, the discussion of these pan-resistant organisms that are happening uh, inside hospitals. And largely, uh, our practices in prescribing antibiotics uh, are to some degree to blame for this. The immediate consequences of the flawed antibiotic prescribing practices are increased morbidity and mortality, superinfection with multiple drug or even pan resistant organisms, serious toxicity, antibiotic-related colitis, and increased direct and indirect healthcare costs. We've already alluded to this, and starting antibiotic therapy for a patient in the ICU really falls into one of three categories. Either you're using antibiotics for empiric use, you're either treating a definitive and defined infection, Uh, of an organism that's been isolated uh, in the laboratory or you're using it for prophylaxis. What we're going to do now is we're going to talk about each of those three um, uh, uses. Empiric, definitive treatment, and prophylaxis. Let's start with empiric therapy. Most antimicrobial use in the ICU is initiated based on the suspicion that the patient has a uh, est- uh, potentially established infection. This judgment is usually founded on the presence of local or systemic clinical signs and symptoms, such as laboratory results such as an elevated white count, maybe even elevated C reactive protein or procalcitonin concentration, x ray findings, perhaps an infiltrator or a pleural effusion, and in some cases, early results from special uh, stains on materials sent for culture. It is common for ICU patients to develop prominent systemic signs, but no or overt local signs of infection. Such presentations may be caused by an upregulation of the inflammatory cascade by non-infectious reasons. This is the, the surge response. If you take a a burn patient, for instance, burn patients typically always have fevers. Uh, We learned in residency or in medical school the five W's of what causes a fever, and it's not always an infection. Things such as atelectasis, uh, DVTs, uh, the presence of a wound can cause a fever. So therefore, every person who has a fever doesn't need antibiotics. Now, there are uh, cohorts of patients that have, have immunosuppression uh, that could be an oncology patient, that could be a transplant patient, that could be somebody who's had a neutropenia. A, a burn patient would also fall into this category, and they may not be able to manifest a surge response, and therefore a, an infection could be rather indolent in them. It has been estimated that 50% of febrile responses in the ICU patient may be non-infectious in origin. 50%. I've seen numbers quoted in the uh, Schwartz textbook of surgery that in some ICUs that number could be as low as 27% of, of patients. So it's, it's fair to say that the majority, or at least half the patients in the ICU who have a fever, don't have an infection. And therefore, as you evaluate a patient who has a fever, you need to really determine, am I starting the antibiotics to treat the patient or am I starting the antibiotics to treat myself? The crucial importance of providing adequate empiric treatment has been shown in studies analyzing both crude-associated and affection associated mortality in both bloodstream infections and ventilator-acquired pneumonia. I'm going to quote a bunch of studies here. Here's one by Colifel. They looked at mixed types of infections. With adequate um, uh, treatment, the crude mortality was 12%. With inadequate empiric therapy, the mortality was 51%. Ibrahim and all looked at bloodstream infections. Crude mortality with adequate therapy, the mortality rate was 28%. With inadequate uh, choice of antibiotics, the mortality rate was 62%. Luna and colleagues looked at ventilator-acquired pneumonia. With adequate choices of antibiotics, the crude mortality rate was 37%. With inadequate uh, choices of antibiotics, the mortality rate was 91%. It's kind of high, but here's another paper by uh, Rello and colleagues, again, looking at ventilator-acquired pneumonia. When they chose the right antibiotics, the mortality rate was 41%, which isn't much different from the 37 quoted by Luna. But with inadequate choices of antibiotics, the mortality rate was 63%. So this data really demonstrates to you that when you go to write the antibiotics, for an empiric treatment of a bloodstream infection, for a urinary tract infection, for peritonitis or pneumonia, you really need to make sure that you're choosing the right antibiotics. Failure to do so will result in worse outcomes and demonstrated in the literature by higher mortality rates. Ideally, the empiric antibiotics are started immediately after pertinent cultures are obtained. They should not be delayed for any reason in an unstable patient. This is one of the times where you'd actually want to write a stat order for antibiotics. Empiric antibiotic therapy should be administered within one hour of the diagnosis of sepsis and certainly as soon as possible to the hemodynamically unstable patient. I remember hearing a, a complication years ago where a patient uh, was suspected of having a pneumonia. They underwent a bronchoscopy with a bronchoalveolar lavage. The physicians taking care of the patient got distracted with another emergency. It took several hours until they came back and wrote for the antibiotics. and By then, the patient's condition had clinically deteriorated even further. And it was basically in the throes of a, uh, of a septic shock picture. The major reason for inadequate empiric coverage in most studies has been the prescriber's underestimation of the degree of antimicrobial resistance in the infecting pathogens. Coloff and uh, colleagues demonstrated that the most common isolates that are not covered well by uh, typical agents chosen for empiric therapy are pseudomonas, which typically resistant to third-generation cephalosporins, MRSA and multiple drug-resistant acinetobacter. So those are the three bugs that you have to consider in empiric therapy that are going to probably uh, cold cock you. And that's going to be Pseudomonas, MRSA, and multiple drug-resistant acinetobacter. You certainly cannot be in my hospital and not be considered uh, worried about uh, the acinetobacter component. Now, when we consider most drug therapies for something like an inotrope or an antihypertensive agent, we're typically, when we think about the pharmacology, we typically only have to consider the interaction between the patient and the medication. But when we're dealing with antibiotics, we, aren't, we just don't have to think about the... the uh, patient-specific uh, components and the medication interactions, but we also have to think about how that medication, that antibiotic, is going to interact with the microbe. And when you go to choose an antibiotic, you need to consider where you're sending that antibiotic. Does it have good tissue penetration at the site of infection? What is the pH in which that you expect that antibiotic to be working at? What is the oxygen tension of that environment? Some antibiotics work very good in acidic environments. Others don't. Some antibiotics are able to work under low oxygen tension environments. Others don't. We typically think of this very well. We've been trained very well of this to think about when we treat somebody who has meningitis. We have to recognize that there's this special barrier, the blood-brain barrier there, and not all antibiotics are able to penetrate that blood-brain barrier. But the reality is, is that another tissue that is difficult to penetrate is the lung, and there are certain antibiotics that are very good penetrating the lung, and there are certain antibiotics that are very poor penetrating the lung even though you may get a microbiology report back from the laboratory and it says that a certain antibiotic is sensitive to a particular drug in the laboratory that report is not taking into consideration the tissue in which you're trying to penetrate. Now, another example of this is that you could have drugs that are intermediate or intermediate, or perhaps resistant in vitro, but there are environments in which the concentration of the antibiotic is uh, increased. And typically, we're talking there about urinary tract infections, that certain uh, antibiotics that are that are excreted by the kidneys and concentrated are able to get very high concentrations in the urine. Uh, so, if you're treating something like pneumonia, you may be, be uh, a certain antibiotic may be ineffective. But treating that same bug in the urine, uh, that antibiotic could be very effective. The other thing we need to think about is, uh, uh, as far as the resistance of the microbe. And parameters that determine the likelihood of resistance include the length of hospital stay, recent prior antibiotic exposure, the endemic um, incidence of certain specific uh, resistant uh, pathogens, such as MRSA, VRE. Uh, and the extended uh, spectrum beta-lactamase-producing uh, Klebsiella and coli. Within the hospital or ICU, you need to maintain awareness of nosocomial epidemics and evidence that the patient in question had prior colonization or an infection with a multiple drug resistant pathogen. Recent surveillance studies demonstrate an increased incidence of community acquired MRSA without discernible risk factors, uh, and this is something that needs to be of concern. The federal government doesn't get that. Uh, the federal government is now incident is starting to. Um, well, the federal government is considering, and they're certainly going to do this, uh, they're not going to reimburse hospitals for nosocomial infections. They're saying the the patient got the infection in the hospital, we're not going to pay or uh, reimburse the hospital for the treatment that that patient required. And one of the things the federal government assumes, wrongly so, that every case of MRSA was acquired in the hospital, and that's just not the case. The other thing that we see often done uh, in intensive care units is that we will use combination of antibiotics to attack a certain microbe. And why are we doing that? Combination drug therapy is popular, especially to life-threatening gram-negative infections, particularly those caused by pseudomonas. There are no data to support the practice. If anything, synergistic therapy without, excuse me with an aminoglycoside may actually increase toxicity without any potential benefit. Another pitfall of antimicrobial combination therapy is that some combinations are antagonistic and thus potentially deleterious to your overall treatment. The most simple example of this is that we have antibiotics that are considered bactericidal, and that's you know, you know what homicidal means that means you kill, so you and something that is bactericidal will kill the bacteria. We have uh, uh, antibiotics that are bacteriostatic, and that means they don't allow the organism to grow any further and basically sell. Uh, Can't carry on any of its metabolism, it just dies, but it doesn't lyse the cell or kill it. Now, if you give an antibacterial, if you give a bactericidal with a bacteriostatic and you need that cell to metabolize in order to kill it with the bactericidal antibiotic, you're kind of working against yourself. Uh, A more definitive example of using a bactericidal with a bacteriostatic agent uh, together. Uh, Harming your treatment is in the uh, case of treating meningitis with, like, say, penicillin and tetracycline or the use of beta-lactamase inducers such as teftazidine and a beta-lactamase-susceptible agent such as pipericillin in the same combination. The uh, utility of combination therapy to achieve synergism, which is enhanced bactericidal activity, against a single organism and minimize the emergence of resistance. So you really want to get your punch, but you don't want to induce resistance. Once you've obtained your cultures and you've sent, you, uh, started the patient on empiric antibiotic, you really need to be watching the clock. Most um, laboratory data from the microbiology lab will be available within 48 to 72 hours after cultures are obtained. Negative cultures are sterile, no pathogen growth. Um, must be interpreted cautiously because there are patients who are on antimicrobial therapy at the time of the culture results are obtained uh, as prior treatment may increase the false negative rate. Positive culture results also require some interpretation. Blood cultures growing Coag negative staph are likely contaminated in 70 to 90 percent of the cases, especially when only a single culture specimen is positive in the absence of indwelling devices or prosthesis. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Blood cultures growing coag-negative staph are contaminated in 70-90% to 90% of the cases. Early detection of growth, say within less than 24 hours, and growth from two cultures, results obtained by separate venipunctures increase the likelihood a true coag-negative staph bacteremia is present. Isolates of staph aureus, any gram-negative bacillus, or yeast is almost always important clinically. The vast majority of bacterial isolates from urine specimens obtained from uh, catheters represent bacteria and are rarely the de novo cause of sepsis in the absence of urinary tract pathology. If you obtain a respiratory tract culture from a sputum or an endotracheal aspirate um, uh, by suctioning, these are notoriously false positive. If you're trying to evaluate the lung for an infection, quantitative cultures using the techniques of blind or bronchoscopic bronchoalveolar lavage or protected breast specimens, the way to go. Once you start getting your antimicrobial data back, you need to evaluate it and determine, do I have the patient on the right antibiotic? If a patient has a really bad organism, and you've got them on something like ANSEF, and it's a pan-resistant organism, you want to get them on a stronger antibiotic that will kill the bug. But at the same time, you don't want to use a sledgehammer to drive a nail. If you get a microbiology report back, and the organism is pan-sensitive to other antibiotics that are less toxic with a narrower spectrum and adequate tissue penetration to where the infection is, switch that patient to a narrower spectrum antibiotic. You're doing them a favor. You're not going to select or you're going to decrease the likelihood that you're going to select for a resistant organism. Patients begun on vancomycin empirically for MRSA who are infected with a methicillin-sensitive Staphoria strain in fact should be switched to an anti-staphylococcal uh, penicillin such as nafcillin or oxacillin. Gram-negative bacilli that are resistant to empiric um, beta-lactamase cephalosporin coverage and this is often attributed to a chromos- uh, chromosome-mediated resistance. These patients typically require a, a carbapenem now, the other side of that argument is that patients who are started on more aggressive empiric regimens, such as a carbapenem or cefepime or a, uh, a piptazo combination, should be switched to, uh, or could be, maybe switched to ace or an earlier generation cephalosporin should the susceptibilities uh, reports merit that. And amino aminoglycosides can usually be stopped entirely in most cases, given that nephrotoxicity remains a substantial risk with treatment of a, a aminoglycoside with five or seven days of exposure. Now let's change gears a little bit and talk about the patient who has a documented infection. The, mo- the majority of comparative antimicrobial trials for common infections in ICUs have shown comparable clinical and microbiological outcomes. In part, this observation is due to the true biological equivalence of the tested regimens, and to some degree to the clinical trial designs, which are often uh, um, underpowered to show significant difference in um, certain antimicrobial regimens. Uh, these studies would demonstrate; uh, these uh, studies would require uh, significant more statistical power to show differences in outcomes. Now, when we start talking about antimicrobial dosing, the dose and dosing interval of any approved or late-phase investigational antibiotic uh, can be found readily in the package inserts, textbooks, and, and online databases. The dosing recommendations usually do not consider some really important parameters whose importance need to be amplified in the critically ill patient. And these include the target organism, its susceptibility to the, animi- the antibiotic being used, the site of infection, the host defenses and the large variability in the volume and distribution of critically ill patients. Now antibiotics kill uh, organisms in in two fashions, and that's concentration-dependent killing and time-dependent killing. Concentration-dependent killing is said to occur when an increase in the antibiotic concentration results in an accelerated rate of bacterial killing. Dosing regimens for concentration-dependent uh, agents should ideally conform to high, higher doses, sequenced over longer intervals, which may be modified because of diminished uh, a renal function. Now, time-dependent killing is characterized by a reduction in bacterial count that is dependent upon maintaining the serum concentration above the pathogen MIC for most of the dosing interval, or greater than MIC, or greater than 50% of the dosing interval. So let's uh, let's go over that. We have concentration-dependent killing and time-dependent killing. Concentration-dependent killing basically occurs when we get the concentration of the antibiotic to a certain point, and that results in accelerated bacterial killing. Dose-dependent, excuse me, time-dependent killing is based on keeping that concentration of the antibiotic above a certain level for greater than 50% of the dosing interval. Uh, time-dependent uh, situ- um, antibiotics are typically like beta-lactams and glycopeptide antibiotics. The optimal dosing regimen for time-dependent antibiotics are typically smaller doses at frequent intervals or by using prolonged and continuous infusions. Now, is there any evidence that combination therapy improves outcomes or prevents resistance? Well, When we talk about using combination of antibiotics, the organism that really first comes to mind here is Pseudomonas and some other gram-negative infections. One large study of Pseudomonas bacteremia showed improved outcome with either synergistic or non-synergistic two-agent therapy versus monotherapy. However, the monotherapy arm included many patients treated only with an aminoglycoside or inadequate monotherapy. Other studies of Pseudomonas and Enterobacter species as well as Klebsiella, have failed to show a clinical benefit of combination therapy. Moreover, rates of emerging resistance to anti agents were uniformly high in the range of 10-20% to 20% and were not influenced by using a combination regimen. Combination of antimicrobials may also increase toxicity, expenses, and resistance depending on the agents that you're choosing. Another thing that you'll hear typically mentioned, particularly along the drug routes, is that my drugs bactericidal and their drugs bacteriostatic. What does that mean? Bactericidal activity is defined as a minimum bacter—excuse me—a minimum bactericidal concentration. Um, and bactericidal means you're killing. I think it's 10 uh, log 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 of uh, four. So it's got a um, organism count which results in bactericidal or bacteriostatic is less than that count. What is confusing about this is that certain antibiotics may be bactericidal for one particular organism, but bacteriostatic for a different species or even a different strain of the same species. So whether some, uh, an antibiotic is cidal or static really depends on the bug. An example of this is that vancomycin exhibits bacteriocidal activity against uh, um, uh, Streptococcus pneumonia, uh, slow bactericidal activity against MRSA and bacteriostatic activity against Enterococcus. Some bactericidal agents include penicillins, but that they are bacteriostatic against Enterococcus. Cephalosporins are bactericidal. Carbapenems are bactericidal. Monobactams. Vancomycin is generally considered bactericidal, but it's bacteriostatic or slow bactericidal against Staph aureus. The quinolones are bacteriocidal, aminoglycosides likewise. Daptomycin and flagel are also bactericidal. So what leaves that as bacteriostatic? Bactrim, uh, clindamycin, uh, linazolid is bacteriostatic, the macrolides, chloramphenicol is bacteriostatic, tetracycline and tigacycline are also bacteriostatic. Now bacteriostatic agents inhibit bacterial growth, and therefore they're leaving the host defenses to manage the residual uh, uh, inoculum of organisms. Whereas bactericidal agents kill the organism, and that results in, in uh, cytolysis or lysis of the organism. Now there's a paucity of clinical data as to whether bactericidal antibiotics offer a treatment advantage. The advantage of bactericidal drugs have been de- demonstrated for therapy of bactericidal meningitis endocarditis, uh, and gram-negative bacteremia and neutropenia. Now, there are those who think that bactericidal antibiotic therapy could be undesirable in some clinical situations, and, and typically that you could see where this would occur, that if you had a rapid bacterial lysis may result in a greater endotoxin release and a greater magnification of a surge response, that as you lyse uh, an uh, um, inoculum of bacteria, you're creating all these antigenic particles and you're basically dosing the when you dose the antibiotic of a bactericidal antibiotic and it lyses this inoculum of uh, bacteria that you're basically bolsing this patient with this this uh, load of antigens from the lysine bacteria and that could result in a surge response and potentially some organ dysfunction. It's a good theory but it's only been investigated in small observational series and the theory really essentially remains unproven. Now in toxic mediated infections such as streptococcal necrotizing fasciitis, toxic shock syndrome, bacteriostatic protein synthesis inhibitors such as uh, clindamycin and linazolid may diminish the quantity of toxin compared to cell wall-activated bactericidal agents. Uh, again, though, no prospective trials uh, have been uh, developed to test these these uh, theories. Now, we will say that we don't want to use a sledgehammer when we need to use a hammer to drive a nail. And what we mean by that is we don't want to use an antibiotic with this huge bacter- uh, antibiotic spectrum Uh, when we have a uh, rather, what I'd call a sissy organism that would respond to a very narrow spectrum antibiotic. Well, the same could be true about the duration of antibiotic therapy, and this is where I'm really kind of fascinated by the way the pediatricians will treat a lot of infections. Because certainly the difficulty in treating children is getting them to take a horrible taste antibiotic antibiotic for 14 days. And they've shown consistently that they've been able to knock down the duration of antibiotic therapy. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot uh, in infectious disease when it comes to... Um, uh, how we manage these patients in the ICU that something where we typically manage it with fourteen days of antibiotics because it was an arbitrary number that we may show adequate um, resolution of the infection with say five or seven days of antibiotic therapy, and perhaps even by decreasing the duration of antibiotic treatment, decrease the likelihood that we're going to develop uh, multiple drug-resistant organisms. Now, sites that are difficult to sterilize are those such as the central nervous system, um, heart valves, and the renal parenchyma, and those will typically require longer courses of therapy. Other things that may result in an increased duration of therapy is when you're treating organisms that are considered facultative intracellular pathogens. And um, those are things like Staph aureus, Listeria, Legionella pneumophilia, and Salmonella organisms. And these usually require longer courses of therapy due to the higher rate of relapse when shorter courses of therapy are employed. Now, observational studies have shown that Staph aureus bacteremia may have a 5 to 10% rate of relapse Um, or even metastatic infection in patients treated with durations of less than 14 days. Uh, Persistence of staph aureus in the bloodstream beyond two or three days of appropriate therapy is an important clinical marker indicating that patient's at higher risk for relapse. And I've started to see my infectious disease consultants uh, do this as well, that we're treating a staph aureus infection. They'll typically will get repeat blood cultures in a few days. And again, they're looking for patients who would be at risk for relapse. A recent clinical trial of nosocomial pneumonia demonstrated equivalent clinical outcomes for eight days of therapy compared to 15 days of therapy. So again, aside from the... the uh, a decrease in cost of giving somebody an additional seven days of antibiotics and the hassle of keeping lines in them and so forth, by shortening the duration of therapy, it is likely that we're going to decrease the likelihood of having a development of a multiple drug-resistant organism. The example that I'll use often with families and the residents is a baseball example, and that is, is that if a batter sees a hitter, excuse me, if a batter sees a pitcher, um frequently. He goes up and he, he has to face this pitcher and this pitcher has to pitch to him and he's trying to hit that ball. If, the, if that batter sees that pitcher a lot, he's going to learn his timing, he's going to learn how he throws the ball, and eventually he's going to be able to hit the ball. Antibiotics are the same way. We don't want to necessarily be exposing these organisms to an antibiotic they don't need because eventually the organism is going to figure it out I'm, giving it, I'm, I'm personalizing the, uh, the organisms. But eventually they're going to figure it out when they're exposed to the antibiotics. One organism is going to figure out a way to develop some drug resistance. It will, and we'll have a patient who had a sensitive organism, has now got a multiple drug-resistant organism, um, because of we didn't shorten the duration or narrow the scope of the antibiotics. Now, if we're giving a patient what seems to be appropriate antibiotics, and they're not getting better, and we look at our uh, microbiology report, and we look at our antibiotics, and everywhere we look in the microbiology report, we have our antibiotics, has a little S next to it saying sensitive, but the patient isn't getting clinically better. Well, you have to start asking yourself, what am I doing wrong? And typically, there are really two things that are going on, is that either the patient's not getting an adequate, adic- well, co- no, two things, but a couple things, is the patient getting an adequate dose of antibiotics, do they have a source that isn't drained, So I don't have source control, and typically that's going to be a surgical issue. Or has the patient developed a resistance? When we look at the list of things to consider in patients who are failing Seemingly adequate antimicrobial therapy. You have undrained infected materials. This is abscess, devitalized tissue. So this goes to source control. Underlying host defenses, particularly for relying on bacteriostatic antibiotics, because, well, bacteriostatic antibiotics really do. It's like taking somebody who's, who's robbing you and holding them down until somebody else can beat up on them, and the person beating up on them is the patient's native immune system. Recurrent aspiration in the case of pneumonia. Neutropenia. Infected prosthetic material, again going back to source control. Removable intravascular catheters or bladder catheters, going back to source control. Permanent orthopedic hardware or vascular grafts, this is your worst nightmare. Again, source control. Poor tissue penetration, caused by inadequate microcirculation. Uh, Again, this is uh, something I think we often overlook, but again, is the antibiotic you're using, does it penetrate that tissue well? Superinfection with new pathogens, that's something always, if you're treating uh, a gram-positive organism and now they have a gram-negative organism, you clearly need to replan what you're doing. Inadequate antibiotic dosing and evolved resistance of the original organism to the original antibiotic. So next I want to talk about some of the different antibiotics and how they work, and what are some of the special considerations. Uh, Probably the most common are the beta-lactams. These are drugs like your penicillins, your cephalosporins. uh, uh, These are bactericidal antibiotics, and they all have in common the presence of the beta-lactam ring. And it's the modifications to those rings that distinguish things like penicillins and cephalosporins in the monobactams. The beta-lactams can be also uh, combined with the beta-lactamase inhibitors. Uh, such as sulbactam, tazobactam, and clavulanic acid. And this results in an increase in the antimicrobial spectrum. Beta-lactams work by interfering with the synthesis of the cell wall and, and is, uh, may, uh, may be effective frequently as a monotherapy, taking into account the caveats that we've already talked about as far as using what agents and penetration and, and the tissue that you're uh, targeting. ace is a really cool antibiotic that I, I like. Uh, ace is often thought of as a genomycin substitute. Uh, unlike genomycin, uh, ace works well in a low-redox environment. It works good in a low pH, and it is unique in its uh, antigenicity. Uh, it is so antigenetically different from the rest of the beta-lactams that it can be used with utmost safety in patients who are penicillin allergic. Astrinam is the only active agent uh, against gram-negative organisms. I don't know if I said that right. Uh, Astrinam is active only against gram-negative organisms. And as I've said earlier, uh, I... When I think of ace I think of it very similarly to an aminoglycoside. So when you would think of when I would use aminoglycoside, I would typically think of ace Now keep in mind, ace is a beta-lactam, and I don't like to use, similar. if I'm using combination therapy, if I think it's indicated, keeping in mind the discussions we had above about combination therapy, if you're using a beta-lactam, such as a cephalosporin, I don't know that I would use a second beta-lactam um You like to use drugs that use different mechanisms. Next are the fluoroquinolones. And fluoroquinolones act by interfering with DNA gyrase. This results in impaired DNA synthesis and repair. And quinolones kill in a concentration-dependent fashion. Remember, we talked about concentration-dependent killing and time-dependent killing. We can really break down the different fluoroquinolones or the different quinolones in different generations. The first generation agents had gram-negative activity only and were used typically for urinary tract infections. The agent that typically characterizes the first generation quinolones is nalodixic acid. Second generation quinolones Quinolones had added gram positive activity and were used for systemic infections. And typically, the drugs that are considered really the second generation quinolones were ciprofloxacin and ofloxacin. Uh, These agents uh, had limited utility for respiratory infections. Because of relatively high MIC values uh, among a pneumococcus, making it necessary to use high doses of Cipro. So Cipro not really was not a good drug for treatment of pneumonia. Now the third generation uh, agents are characterized by better gram-positive activity, particularly against pneumococcus. Among the third generation agents uh, more uh, active against pneumococcus is monofloxacin compared to levofloxacin. Now, these third-generation agents also have very long half-lives, which allow for convenient once-a-day dosing. Aminoglycosides are bactericidal agents. Uh, Remember from medical school that they bind the 30S subunit of the ribosome, and that interferes with protein synthesis. As we've already said, aminoglycosides really target gram-negative organisms. Just as a kind of a side note, genomycin does have some activity against Staph aureus and are usually used in combination, uh, gen- uh, aminoglycosides with other uh, agents targeting difficult organisms. The prototypical one is Pseudomonas. Uh, uh, and as well as other multiple drug-resistant gram-negative bacteria. And we do this really despite the lack of data as to show the effectiveness of combination uh, regimens. When combined, a certain beta-lactam agents and mutaclycosides achieve antibactericidal synergy in vitro. Against pseudomonas. The key word there is in vitro. Uh, this has not been shown to be a phenomena in vivo, and it has not been shown to be a phenomena with once-daily dosing. So again, if you're choosing your antibiotics and you're saying, well, I want to com- uh, combine a beta-lactam, uh, with an aminoglycoside, but then I'm going to dose the aminoglycoside with once daily dosing. You're really out on thin ice when it comes to the data to suggest that that is a sound medical evidence. Now, amicacin is the least susceptible to enzymatic breakdown by bacteria, whereas tobramycin is more active uh, than genomycin against pseudomonas. So again, just restating that, amicacin is perhaps a little bit more bullet resistant to enzymatic breakdown and tobramycin or target pseudomonas better. Now, aminoglycosides penetrate poorly in the lung tissue and can be inactivated by an acidic pH, which is common in infected lung tissue as well as intradominal abscesses. And this is what I said above about if you're targeting um, those environments, acetreonine would perhaps be a better choice. Now, aminoglycosides kill in a concentration-dependent fashion, uh, and it's this which results in the post-antibiotic effect that allows the use of uh, single-day dosing. They can be dosed once daily to optimize the killing while minimizing the toxicity. Now, in clinical practice, this has not been proven to occur, and once-daily dosing is comparable in efficacy to multiple-dose regimens, albeit with somewhat less nephrotoxicity. So again, when you're looking at once-daily dosing versus multiple dosing, you're not going to get any better Uh, clearance of the organism, but you are going to result perhaps in less toxicity. When aminoglycosides are used, it is necessary to monitor serum concentrations to minimize the incidence of acute renal failure. Peak peak concentrations correlate with efficacy, but only have a meaning with multiple daily dosing. Okay, Their utility in once-daily dosing has not been established, and they are not uh, usually obtained. Trough concentrations are monitored to minimize toxicity and probably should be followed regardless of the dosing regimen, whether you're using uh, several times a day or once daily dosing. Because of poor penetrations in the tissues, some investigators have used nebulized glycosides for the therapy and prevention of gram-negative pneumonia. We do this a lot in burn patients. Um, this approach has been effective in the treatment of infectious and exacerbations in cystic fibrosis patients. A patient uh, who has burned and has smoke inhalation injury is very common to a cystic fibrosis patient and they have a lot of secretions. And we found this uh, very effective. But it's not effective as an adjunct therapy to systemic antibiotics in patients with serious respiratory tract infections. Now, vancomycin. Vancomycin impairs cell wall synthesis by binding to an alanine-alanine terminus. Vancomycin has a broad gram-positive spectrum, which includes coag-negative staph, methazone-resistant staph aureus, vancomycin-sensitive enterococcus, bacillus species, strep pneumonia, as well as other streptococcus. Vancomycin kills in a time-dependent fashion. Okay, compared to the immunoglycosides, which we say were dose-dependent. And vancomycin exhibits only slow bactericidal activity against staph aureus. Although vancomycin remains a valuable and inexpensive an antibiotic, there are several important limitations. It has limited lung penetration. In fact, less than 30% of the serum concentration is able to be obtained in the lung. And this can contribute to the clinical failure of vancomycin therapy for MRSA pneumonia as high as 50%. and That's why we're seeing linazolid being used more for gram-positive pneumonias these days. Vancomycin has limited penetration of biofilms that coat prosthetic devices and this is what's on your central lines. And Since it has limited penetration on that glycocalyx or biofilm uh you often have to, well you often you have to remove a line if you're going to be effective in treating something like a central line infection vancomycin exhibits slow bacterial activity against staph aureus uh vanc penetrates the blood brain barrier but only to a limited degree and a high level of resistance to vancomycin is exhibited in some species of enterococcus Some common complications are ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity are less frequent uh, consequences of therapy than believed previously. The utility of uh, vancomycin monitoring is controversial as it has a predictable volume of distribution and clearance coupled with time-dependent pharmacodynamics. About 60% of vancomycin usage is inappropriate based on guidelines for vancomycin uh, use issued by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So let me restate that. Next time you go to write for vancomycin, you really need to check yourself and make sure that this patient truly warrants this antibiotic. Sixty percent of vancomycin usage in this country is inappropriate, as determined by the Center for Disease Control. Another uh, good antibiotic, but uh, all things in, uh, that are good should be used with moderation. Is the linazolid? Uh, linazolid acts to inhibit bactericidal. Excuse me, uh, inhibit bacterial protein synthesis. Similar to the aminoglycoside that works at the 30S subunit, um, the linazolid um, slows things down by working at the 50S subunit of the ribosome, and this prevents the formation of the 70S complex. Linazolid is active against MRSA and VRE. It is bacteriostatic, but it is bactericidal against uh, some pneumococcus. There has been some reported incidences Uh, of resistance in uh, enterococcus uh, patients, as well as MRSA, but this is usually patients who have been on protracted treatment of the drug. Now the antibiotic adaptomycin, this is a cyclic uh, lipopeptide, it is a parenteral antibiotic with a spectrum against uh, the same organisms that linazolid is used for. It's a cell wall active agent, disrupts the membrane potassium flux. It's active in vitro and bactericidal in a time-dependent fashion. It will kill virtually all gram-positive organisms of clinical importance. Enterococcus, Staph, aureus, MRSA. A theoretical advantage for the use of daptomycin for certain infections, uh, such as endocarditis, is its bactericidal activity against MRSA and Enterococcus. Daptomycin is indicated for the treatment of bloodstream infections, endocarditis, complicated skin and skin structure infections. Daptomycin should not be used for the treatment of pneumonia or for empiric therapy of sepsis when pneumonia is a possibility, and this is due to poor lung tissue penetration and an inactivation of daptomycin by pulmonary surfactant. You should also not use daptomycin uh, to be, uh, for central nervous, stream in, uh, central nervous system infections or bone infections. Again, due to poor tissue penetration. The usual dose in patients with normal renal function is a single dose of four milligrams per kilogram per day if you're treating skin and soft tissue infections, and six milligrams per kilogram per day for bloodstream infections. Dose-dependent skeletal muscle myopathy is reported rarely in daptomycin, but if you're going to be using it, uh, you should get uh, creatinine uh, phosphokinase concentrations um, just to make sure you don't see a bump in the CPKs. Resistance remains rare with daptomycin. Another antibiotic to talk about is tachyclin. Tigacycline is indicated, um, uh, and it's an IV drug for the treatment of complicated skin and skin structure as well as intradominal infections. It has activity against a large number of bacteria, including uh, multiple drug-resistant gram-positive cocci, as well as gram-negative bacilli. Um, Now, there's a big asterisk on this, that when you talk about treatment against gram-negative organisms that could be potentially uh, multiple drug resistance. The big exception to this is pseudomonas. Tygocycline is bacteriostatic. It binds the bacterial ribosomes, inhibits protein synthesis. It is um, um, uh, it is sensitive to uh, um, enterococcus species as well as VRE. Tigecycline is administered by IV infusion. Initial dose is 100 milligrams, followed by 50 milligrams every 12 hours. You do not need to reduce the dose of ticlopidine in patients with renal insufficiency, uh, but it um, but you do need to reduce the, the dose for patients with hepatotoxicity. Um, ticlopidine may decrease the elimination of uh, 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 warfarin, and therefore, if you have a patient who's taking coumadin, you need to make appropriate adjustments. Do not administer this drug to pregnant women because it will harm the fetus uh, and should be avoided in children under the age because it can impair tooth development and result in a discoloration of the teeth. In this last section, I just want to go over briefly some of the uh, organisms that are known to be troublemakers in the intensive care unit. I'm sure you're very familiar with those, but we'll just kind of reiterate what some of the players are and some of their personalities. Uh, Perhaps the one of the most feared ones is VRE or vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. Enterococcus facium is the organism many isolates of VRE reflect colonization rather than invasive infections. Now there's a difference between colonization and infection. You can have an organism on your hand if I swabbed everybody's hands who are listening to this podcast, and there are thousands of you quite frankly, I would suspect that we would every swab that we would take would be growing something that would not mean that your hand was infected. The presence of bacteria does not confer the fact that uh, you have a disease. To have an infection, the organism needs to uh, basically overtake or penetrate normal tissue. That is the definition of infection. Everywhere you find a bacteria does not mean you have an infection. It's a very, very important point. Therefore, if you have a culture that's positive, you have to determine, am I treating a colonization, or am I treating an infection? And often, where I think I have a colonization is often the time where I will get an infectious disease consult, because it is hard not to give somebody with a positive culture an antibiotic. And often, by after consulting with my infectious disease colleagues, we'll come to the same conclusion. And they'll say, yeah, Jeff, this this is a colonization, and you're fine not to treat that. So keep in mind that many isolates of VRE are colonizations, not infections. Isolation of VRE from the bloodstream or purulent closed-space infections in symptomatic patients does merit antibiotic treatment. At present, there are four agents that can be used to treat VRE infections, daptomycin, linazolid, quinupristin, and ty- uh, tigacyclin. Although there are no head-to-head comparisons of these agents, the side effect profile of all three of the other agents appears more favorable than using quinupristin. There is linazolid-resistant VRE strains that are being reported out there, and we're typically seeing this in patients um, who've had inadvertently drained or non-removable foci of infections, i.e. source control problems, or people who have received inappropriately uh, protracted therapy. Chloramphenicol has about a 50 to 60 percent efficacy rate, based on small published reports. Nitrofuratonin may be used for VRE urinary tract infections but only in patients with a creatinine clearance of greater than 40 milliliters per minute. Staph aureus, including MRSA. VANC has been the traditional first-line therapy for uh, most serious MRSA infections. However, there's increasing awareness of its limitations. VANC achieves only slow bactericidal killing activity. And this is, you keep hearing this over and over again through this podcast. Vankamycin achieve, achieves its killing slowly. Okay, vancomycin has poor lung and central nervous system penetration and poor activity on prosthetic biofilms. Interesting that combination therapy uh, with genomycin may enhance vancomycin's bactericidal activity. However, such use does not alter clinical cure rates. In vanc uh, intolerant patients or vanc refractory MRSA infections, either linazolid or quinupristin have shown modest efficacy of salvage options. Daptomycin is bactericidal rapidly against Staph aureus, including MRSA, but whether rapid killing confers a clinical advantage for therapy of most infections is debatable. Tigacycline is active uh, in a bacteriostatic fashion against MRSA, but the fact that Tigacycline kills in a bacteriostatic fashion this does not provide a disadvantage uh, for most therapeutic situations. Pseudomonas is a favorite in the intensive care unit. This is uh, ubiquitous. It's considered an virulent opportunistic uh, whose virulence is enhanced in critically ill patients. It is the second most common isolate uh, in most ICU infections. And infections caused by pseudomonas are the leading cause of death from those infections in the ICU. With infection-associated mortality as high as 70% in patients with pneumonia, or bacteremia. A prominent characteristic is a high rate of de novo resistance developing during anti pseudomonal therapy, which must be considered as a cause of failed therapy. And that rate of resistance is about 20 to 40%. Emergence of resistance may be more common during therapy with imipenem than during uh, therapy with uh, piperacillin-tazobactam. Meropenem may prove slightly higher activity than imipenem uh, and uh, with a lower propensity for central nervous system toxicity. So again, meropenem is probably your better choice of an antibiotic when treating um, pseudomonas. Doripenem, which is, I believe, just finished its phase three clinical trials, may confer a uh, incremental enhanced activity against pseudomonas with a toxicity profile similar or better than the meropenem. Colistin, also known as polymyxin E, has shown efficacy in several recent series of patients with pan-resistant pseudomonas infections, but uh, colistin has substantial renal toxicity. In fact, I, I often kid our uh, infectious disease colleagues that they need to start having the renal fellow around with them when they're running for uh, colistin. The vinyl organism that I'm going to talk about is Acinetobacter. It is a horrible problem that we deal with. And by reading the literature, you can see that everybody around the country is fighting the same battle with uh, Acinetobacter. It's considered a pleomorphic aerobe. Uh, it's a gram-negative bacillus that's sometimes referred to as a coccobacillus. bacillus. Acinetobacter really likes aquatic environments. It is not part of the normal fecal flora. Acinetobacter is often cultured from hospitalized patients' respiratory secretions, their wounds, their surgical sites, and urine. Most acinetobacter isolates are recovered from hospitalized patients, from the skin, the oropharynx, secretions, respiratory secretions, urine, and these represent colonizations rather than infections. Acinetobacter is a common colonizer of patients in the ICU. Acinetobacter colonization is particularly common in patients with endotracheal intubation and those who have multiple intravenous catheters, uh, monitoring devices, drains, urinary catheters. Patients who have Acinetobacter colonization often have a history of prolonged hospitalization or care in the intensive care unit. Now, although Acinetobacter is a virulent, is considered an avirulent organism, it is capable of causing infection in a seriously ill host. Acinetobacters are uh, Increasingly common when they occur, they usually involve organ systems with a high fluid content, such as sputum, CSF, peritoneal fluid, and urine. Uh, And uh, they manifest most commonly as hospital-acquired pneumonias or ventilator-associated pneumonias, catheter-associated bloodstream infections. The presence of an organism in respiratory secretions of patients undergoing mechanical ventilation may reflect colonization uh, and... uh, uh, but uh, increasingly we're seeing fide infections. Acinetobacter is becoming more and more resistant to several of our antibiotics uh, and um, uh, have emerged um, as susceptible to relatively few antibiotics. In general, cephalosporins, your macrolides, your penicillins have little or no uh, anti-acinetobacter activity. In fact, their use may predispose the patient to becoming colonized with acinetobacter. Antibiotics to which multiple drug resistant Acinetobacter is usually susceptible include meropenem, amikacin, tigecycline, colistin, uh, polymyxin B. With colistin and polymyxin B really being the last, and, uh, the choices of last resort. The morbidity and mortality from Acinetobacter infections really relate to the underlying immune status of the host, rather than the inherent virulence of the organism. So acinetobacter has—it's a, a pretty bad actor when it comes to resistance, but keep in mind, in a normal host, it's really considered to be avirulent. So seriously ill patients have increased morbidity and mortality rates resulting from their underlying illness rather than to superimpose infection with acinetobacter. So that wraps up that discussion. Uh, again, it's a very brief and rapid introduction to various considerations of what antibiotics we use in the intensive care unit and, and covering some topics of multiple drug resistance. Again, the reference document for this uh, teaching session was a chapter written by uh, Lyndon and Phil Berry, uh, Peter Linden and Phil Berry, uh, in the Adult Multiprofessional Critical Care Review uh, from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. My name is Jeff Guy. My home uh, uh, website is www.burndoc.com. Have a good day.